When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The FT Hello and welcome back to FT Science. This week, we find out why gene testing laboratories are routinely infringing DNA patents tried quite hard to to get the Department of Health to give a steer on this and that they often seem to be quite reluctant to intervene. I think they would only be motivated to really get engaged if there was a lot of money at stake. And we joined the battle against tuberculosis. Early case detection means that we prevent future cases who in turn prevent future cases. So, you know, the knock-on benefits of finding tuberculosis early will be realised in years to come. I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. My regular guest, Diana Garnham, Chief Executive of the Science Council, is in the studio with me. Hello, Diana. Hello, Clive. So, on Friday, I went to a briefing organised by Britain's Human Genetics Commission about gene patenting. By now, there are hundreds of British and European patents on DNA, which could apply to the tests carried out routinely by laboratories in the National Health Service but NHS labs are deliberately turning a blind eye to the patents. After the meeting, Gail Norbury, who is Commissioning and Governance Director of the Genetics Labs at Guy's Hospital in London, told me why. My view for gene patterning for DNA tests is that they are unacceptable, unenforceable and sort of detrimental to delivery of patient services. If that's your view, does that just mean that in your labs they're ignored? Across the UK genetic network of um, diagnostic laboratories, gene patterns for particular disorders aren't upheld, and that's just custom and practice. And there's been bits of noise over the years, initially with cystic fibrosis, requests from the Canadian lab to pay a royalty, so that wasn't actually an exclusive arrangement That was the first time people got wind that there might be some issue about restricting practice. And so there was a lot of discussion within the community that works very closely together that this wasn't a principle that we felt was acceptable or a viable option. And so people just just responded collectively together to say that, that, you know, they weren't going to basically pay anything. People have paid sums of money for royalties for using particular bits of kit but in terms of gene patents and that's a different step in as much as people wouldn't recognize sort of scientifically that there's a legitimate argument to be had for patenting part of nature despite the ruling in the US last week that isolated DNA is somehow different to the DNA that's in your body. So people just wouldn't generally accept that as a legitimate argument. And also, I think a lot of collective work goes into the identification of a gene. So a lot of background work over many years that lots of people have contributed to. You know, it's patients giving samples, charity money, bits and pieces, and not everyone wants to get the credit for it all, you know, have have been acknowledged for the contribution they've, they've made. 
What about the industry's argument that unless users like your labs pay royalties, there won't be such an incentive to innovate? I don't buy that. Some of those people are in it to make a profit, and that's actually what they're about, and particularly where they want to have an exclusive licence, which is what Myriad have done. They've, they don't want other people in the marketplace. Uh, it was a bit different with cystic fibrosis, where basically it came across a bit like they were trying it on, that they would, you could give some money to the, the children's hospital in Toronto, and that would help their foundation. But because other people help each other all the time, it's just part of... You know, normal practice and you don't expect to have to, to pay for that help so we didn't, we didn't see why we should do it on, on that occasion so I think there's, there's other ways for people to get funding I mean, a lot of funding for medical research work comes from charities Do you think we can carry on muddling through as someone else put it today or do you think the government and the NHS collectively should take a lead in clearing up this mess. I suspect we'll probably muddle on because although it might not be the ideal solution, the current way of working is to deregulate. So I don't think anything is going to be collectively managed. And and in fact, the laboratories over the years have sometimes tried quite hard to to get the Department of Health to give a steer on this and that they often seem to be quite reluctant to intervene. I think they would only be motivated to really get engaged if there was a lot of money at stake. And I think certainly for rare genetic disorder testing, it's too small and uh, probably best to keep our heads under the radar. Quite a mess, I would say, the current position, wouldn't you, Diana? It is, but it always was. I mean, I remember with all the debates in Europe, the people's lack of understanding that this was about patenting knowledge, not a product. Yes. And I, I just listening to that you just think we still haven't faced that issue that this is a different model it's got even worse because there are more and more patents and they're being used more and more no one has faced up to it i don't think no and i remember when we look at some of the things like xenotransplantation the nhs has always said that the advantage of a public health delivery system in the, is that it can deliver leadership in some of these really difficult areas. And so I think we, we have to look to the NHS, not necessarily the Department of Health, but the NHS to look at how it's using these tests and to provide some leadership internally. I think, as Gail Norbury said, the current mood in the NHS is exactly the opposite. And one thing that's going to make it worse is that as the NHS privatises or spins out its testing labs and they become private companies, then they're going to be more tempting targets for the owners of the intellectual property. I mean, there's a big public relations problem in suing a lovely little hospital or big hospital, but suing a company will be different. It's still going to be owned by the public. I mean, I think there's also that the numbers are quite small, apart from the breast cancer genes, the numbers are quite small. And whatever way you look at it, it's hard to see how a company can make huge amounts of money from suing hospitals for testing for something relatively rare like cystic fibrosis. I mean, the, the, the numbers are not going to be there. In that case, maybe the patent holders should give a waiver to NHS labs or labs in public health services in other countries, at least in Europe. I think they need to sit down and really look through the model of whether this is something that can actually work in the long term anyway. It's going back to that original question. Is does the same 
patenting regulation work for patenting knowledge as to patenting a product. Yes. And we have this in a lot of new technologies in the NHS. They evolve. Their use evolves in clinical practice. And so we never sit down like we do with a new medicine and decide whether it works, whether it works in public health terms, what the gain is. And the amount of knowledge involved in genetic testing is going up the whole time. I mean, if you have whole genome testing and individual patent owners on individual genes are all going to take a slice of the action, you might have, as someone said, a $1,000 genome, which takes a thousand, costs $1,000 or less to produce. But taking all the royalties seriously could cost 100000 And it will stop people doing it. Indeed. Unless we use a different system. Unless you evolve a different way of doing somebody's entire genome and you say that actually the testing regime is something very different from individual biomarkers. Yet, as I said to Gail, the companies in this field do want some revenue from this. There was a small UK testing company called Lab 21 at this meeting and their chief scientist said Britain could be a fantastic place for a diagnostic DNA testing industry to evolve, given the resources in the NHS. But at the moment, it's the worst possible place because you can't get any money because no one's going to observe your patents. But now let's move on to our contribution from the British Medical Journal over to Harriet Vickers at the BMJ. Thanks, Clive. Tuberculosis, or TB, is a big problem in the UK. Incidence in most Western European countries is stable or declining. But here we've seen a 75% increase in active cases over the last 20 years. As reported in the BMJ last week, most new diagnoses are in immigrants, but it's homeless people and those with drug and alcohol problems who are being targeted by the Pan-London Find and Treat programme, essentially a chest x-ray clinic in a van. I met them on a screening visit at a homeless support centre and Al Story, Find and Treat's clinical lead, Tommy White's these patients they have to go to for diagnosis. The clinical presentation of tuberculosis is perfectly masked by lifestyle factors. A very high proportion of the clients that we work with have got a cough, they experience sweats because of substance misuse issues, Um, they are quite used to losing weight, etc., and they generally feel pretty tired. So they don't spot the symptoms, and the consequences to that are very delayed presentation. Um, This is further compounded by the fact that they have a high rate of infectious forms of TB and they're in a perfect environment to transmit that disease to other people. After someone is x-rayed on the van, a radiographer immediately assesses the image and tells them if they may have TB. If so, they're escorted there and then to a treatment centre. But how does the programme ensure that patients finish the lengthy course of medication? Well, the the secret is to provide them with a package of support that is meaningful to them and their daily priorities are around safety and around food and around shelter. So unless we provide that sort of package of health and social support, um, it's unrealistic to expect people to be able to 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 complete a six-month course of TB treatment. Part of the care is directly observed therapy. That is simply getting someone who's responsible to observe every single dose being ingested. Um, We can work with a variety of different partners in the community who can support DOT, but uh, where necessary, we'll actually outreach into the street and actually take the medication on a daily basis or three times a week to, uh, to, to people. 
if people are extremely chaotic, it's it's usually necessary to try and find some appropriate accommodation for them. Trying to treat people with tuberculosis on the street is a huge challenge. Catching TB early can have a pervasive public health impact. And as far as our work is concerned, early case detection um, means that we prevent future cases, who in turn prevent future cases. So the you know the knock-on benefits of finding tuberculosis early, particularly the very expensive drug-resistant forms of disease that we're we're, we're, we're seeing an increase of now. I mean, the benefits of what we do today will be realised in, in years to come. Back to you, Clive. Thanks, Harriet, and thanks to the BMJ. I didn't realise that Britain was doing worse than other Western countries in detecting and treating TB, and it's hard to react to that segment without saying just, well done, and let's have more of these mobile treatment centres. What do you think, Diana? I I think that's right. I think for those of us who are in London, we're sort of probably a little bit more aware of this, but our health service hasn't delivered very well in lots of ways to people with, the term was used there, with chaotic lives. And this is a case for GP services and accident and emergency as well. So I think these people are often not even registered with a a GP. So they are outside the system. This is a very commendable initiative, but it brings back memories of the chest x-ray vans in the car park at school. No. Well, let's hope that the mobile find and seek programme is a success not only in London, but moves into other UK cities and does turn the tide against that terrible disease. That's all we have time for today. Next week, we're taking a holiday break. Please join us again in a fortnight for another fascinating look at the world of science. Many thanks to Diana Garnham for joining me today, and thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.